Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to the Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture, you name it, we talk about it and analyze it podcast. This is a very special podcast for me, and I am excited, I am humbled, I am grateful, I am bursting out of the seams with joy around this podcast for a whole host of reasons. May I just dive into why this podcast is so special for me? Absolutely. And I hope for you too. First, may I say I am just weeping with excitement about this podcast. Uh Uh-huh. Good foreshadow there. So Laurel and I, as you all know, Midnight Myth listeners, we started this when Laurel was just my girlfriend, then my fiance, and now my wife. And I do this with my wife, and we are, by the time this episode is posted, we are at our one-year wedding anniversary. You guys. Guys. Pretty, Pretty amazing. And Midnight Myth listeners, you've been on this journey with us together. You've been with us from when we were just dating to now being husband and wife, doing this in the home that we own in South Philadelphia. So there's a whole lot of emotion in this one-year anniversary, and we wanted to go back to a story that meant a ton to us as a couple, as well as kept with this sort of Halloween, it's now fall, it's October 2019, Let's kind of feel a little spooky and a little scary theme that we started last week. And let me just tell, I don't know if I've told this story in the podcast before. It's possible that I have. Yeah, it's possible, but I don't know. Well, the first date Laurel and I had was really simple. The latest season of Doctor Who was out. I posted on Facebook. I just DVR'd the latest season of Doctor Who, the season opener and the Christmas special. I'm really excited. I can't wait to watch it. And Laurel posted underneath, I would love to watch it too. And I'm like, great, come on over. Let's watch Doctor Who together. And that was the first time we hung out one-on-one. And we've pretty much been together ever since. Doctor Who is a huge, huge piece of our relationship. It's one of the things that connects us. When we bought our house, the very first thing we did was paint our door TARDIS blue. 
and we wanted to talk the Doctor Who. It's been a long time since we've done a Doctor Who episode. It really has, yeah. And it's one of my favorite, favorite shows. I mean, it's right up there. It's in my top five favorite shows. I usually slate it as my second favorite show under, under Game, Game of, of Thrones. Thrones. Oh, okay. But then Game of Thrones season eight happens, so I'm not really sure where I rank these anymore. It's sort of a wibbly-wobbly, TV-weavy kind of thing. Timey-wimey. Yeah. Well, in the interest of it being close to Halloween 2019, we wanted to mix up how we've talked about Doctor Who. Previous Doctor Who episodes have been case studies into a particular episode. We've watched the episode, we've talked about the episode, and we've kind of summarized some of the themes, some of the history, some of the mythology in it. We're going to change it up slightly. We are going to be focusing on a particular episode, but in broadly, we wanted to do a case study into a Doctor Who villain, and we're highlighting the Weeping Angels. It's a really exciting uh, way in to talk about Doctor Who because uh, Doctor Who is known for so many things. It's incredible sci-fi storytelling. It's great characters, the uh, way it reinvents itself every couple of years, but also for its monsters and its villains. And on a show with so many iconic and great and easy to revisit villains, there is one that we came back to when we thought about who to start uh, you know, doing an episode about, and that was the Weeping Angels. Because they are terrifying, they are fascinating, and the show does such uh, creative and interesting sort of genre pieces when it works with them. We also know that in the next season of Doctor Who, uh, the 10th Doctor, played by David Tennant, is going to team up with the current Doctor, number 13, played by Jodie Whittaker, to face the Weeping Angels. So we just got that news. We're really excited about it. And we wanted to do a Weeping Angels podcast to prepare. Yeah, so the the first episode where we see, let's talk a little bit about what the angels are, where they come from in the Doctor Who lore and canon, and why we really wanted to talk about them. As many of you know, Doctor Who got a reboot in 2005. Well, now we're in 2007. It's the third season of the Doctor Who David Tennant is the 10th Doctor to play the role. And in, I believe it was the 10th episode, we have this episode called Blink. It was written by Stephen Moffat, the showrunner. Fun fact, it was the only episode that entire season he apparently wrote himself. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And it features a character named Sally Sparrow, who's investigating a spooky old house that has these creepy statues of angels cupping their hands as if they are crying into them. They come to find out that these angels, when not being stared at, are time vortex-consuming predators who touch people, displace them in a different time in the past, and feed off of the potential energy of removing someone from their destined timeline and placing them in another. In this, the character Sally has to kind of uncover this riddle by piecing together Easter eggs and DVDs, which culminates into a message from David Tennant. And the Weeping Angels are trying to uh, get the hold of the TARDIS, and they want to consume the energy of the TARDIS. At the very end of it, the Doctor and Sally trick the angels into looking at each other, which makes them permanently frozen, because as long as a living creature is looking at them, they are a statue. Thence, they're previously, they're permanently frozen. The character Sally ends up giving the Doctor in the Doctor's past 
Sally's future, the evidence that he needs to create these DVD Easter eggs, creating this sort of time loop where all of the events are feeding into each other. That's a great recap of Blink, and it goes to show uh, not only that the episode itself uh, lives on a pretty simple structure, but deals in some really complex theories of time travel, which is something we've come to expect from Doctor Who. Uh, it is this closed loop of storytelling where the past and the future and the present are all interacting with each other by the very nature of this sort of cyclical time loop that has been generated. Right. We see Sally at her the end of her journey in the episode, in the future, encountering the doctor in the doctor's past, which gives him the information that he's going to need in his future to help Sally out with her past. It's basically that scene from Bill and Ted where they say, Ted, remember, a trash can, a trash can. Yes. But it's probably better. Except it's actually a little more thematically consistent. But not to, <laughs> to trash Bill and Ted, I love it, but it's not very good with time travel. <laughs> I mean, there's just like really amazing lines in this. One line that I, I just jotted down from this episode that I thought was really great. I think I know what you're going to say. Sally is exploring the haunted house with her friend. And she's like, I love these old houses. Why? I love old things. They make me feel sad. And her friend goes, What's so good about sad? And she responds, it's happy for deep people. Oh, that is such a good line. And it, it's a it great little, yeah, it's a great little throw out. But I think thematically it also ties really deeply in with what we're going to learn about the weeping angels through sort of understanding them a little bit better. Uh, as we know from first encountering them, they are weeping as though they are in grief. They resemble gravestone monuments and there is something uh, about grief and loss that follows them everywhere they go. And every episode of Doctor Who that features the Weeping Angels has some element of characters having to deal with very real, very human grief. Something that's not always there in these uh, sci-fi moments. So I think it's a wonderful little throw-out line, and I'm glad that you brought that up because it'll be really important to this conversation. Definitely. When the Weeping Angel displaces someone in time, they usually, in all the episodes, somehow communicate with those they left behind, whether that is they see them when they're very old or they write them a letter so that we get a sense of the absolute pain and grief of missing to share a life with someone and how those characters literally now displaced in time. Some make the best of it. Some are lonely and scared. Um, we also see the weeping angels predominantly in the angels take Manhattan with the 11th doctor. That is Matt Smith, where ev almost every single statue in Manhattan in 1939 or 38, I don't remember what year 38, I 38 think. becomes a weeping angel, including the statue of Liberty. And they create this sort of weeping angel time energy farm where they send people back in time and then make them stay in a bedroom for the rest of their lives and confront their young selves as they die really crazy. And so they can feed off all of that time vortex energy, which ultimately culminates in an angel sending the companions Rory and Amy back in time permanently and leaves the doctor alone to find a new companion. Grief. Yeah. Grief. It's a huge part of it. There's one line that the doctor has in the episode Blink where he describes what the angels are and he calls them, I think, the only psychopaths in the universe who kill you nicely. They zap you back in time and make you live to death. 
And there's something uh, that's almost humane about that, but also elicits the most painful responses from the people who are left behind. Definitely. Let's talk a little about the Weeping Angels. Let's let's roll up our sleeves and yeah. get to work. But before we do, lots of things happening in the Midnight Myth world. Lots of news, lots of things to plug. Laurel, plug away. What do we got going on? Well, uh, if you wanted to join the conversation or uh, talk to us or see what's going on with the Midnight Myth follow updates, the best place to do so is on social media, especially Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at The Midnight Myth or on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head to our website, www.midnightmyth.com. There are blogs and extra content there. You can sign up for our email list. Uh, there was a recent blog that we just put up about the role of medieval heraldry in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, a little companion piece to that episode from a couple of weeks ago. Um, and you can also there find out more about our merch store. You can click on that merch store and find uh, Midnight Myth and Wheel of Ka, Tease Totes, Phone Cases, Baby Onesies, whatever you need to rep the Midnight Myth with your friends. Um, and then also on the website, You'll find a link to our Patreon, which is a wonderful, supportive community where you can help and financially support the Midnight Myth. Uh, if you have a little bit of change to spare or a couple of bucks to spare, you can give us a monthly pledge that helps us continue to make the Midnight Myth, produce extra content, keep our equipment in line, keep uh, our, up with our hosting fees on the internet, make sure that we can market and reach greater audiences. It is such an effective tool and something we're so grateful to have in our lives. If you would consider supporting us on Patreon, we would be forever grateful to you. And there are, of course, perks that come with that membership. Um, other than that, we have a giveaway in the works with our friends over at the Pop Venture family on YouTube. Uh, make sure you keep listening uh, through November, because in November, we're going to start uh, a giveaway with our friends over there to coincide with the new Star Wars film, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. I know, I'm so, so excited. And we're going to give away uh, a couple of items with the Pop Venture family on YouTube. Uh, it's going to be some Midnight Myth merch and some sort of mystery box Funko Pops. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. So make sure you subscribe to them. We'll put a link in the show notes and subscribe to us. Make sure you keep listening to get more details on how to enter. And fellow travelers on the path of the beam, the Wheel of Ka will be out with its final discussion on book five, Wolves of the Kala, in a few weeks. I know all of us Dark Tower aficionados out there are waiting in anticipation to see what will happen in the town of Calabris, Bryn Sturgis, pardon me. But anyway, on with the show. A lot of shit. Oh, uh, I just wanted to say There's we- so much shit. Yeah, one more piece of shit. Um, speaking of Wheel of Ka, which is our Dark Tower Stephen King side podcast, we did just announce today what our Halloween 2019 episode is going to be. So in the next couple of weeks, we are going to have an episode on The Shining, which I am so, so excited about. It is one of, if not my favorite horror movies of all time. And we're also working our way through the book so that we can speak to it with a sort of Stephen King lens, a Stanley Kubrick lens, all the SKs. And if there are ways to tie that into the Wheel of Ka, which I'm sure there are, Derek and Steve will definitely do that on the side podcast. So just wanted to make sure everybody knows uh, to catch up on The Shining so you could be ready for our Halloween 2019 episode. Sweet. All right. On with the Weeping Angels. Let's do it. I, I think it's first to kind of, I think it would make sense if we described 
the sort of mythology of the Weeping Angels within the Doctor Who universe, Doctor Who universe, pardon me. And I think it's really articulated in the episode Blink, in that we are first introduced to the angels. To my knowledge, I couldn't find anything contrary. This is the first episode to ever include this villain. Yeah. They've become since a fan favorite. You want to see the doctor fight the angels because of their nicety to their psychopathy, because they are so brutally scary, but totally familiar because the concept is so alien, but so recognizable. I think they work as a doctor who villain in particular in the contemporary sense. So what are the angels in doctor who the weeping angels, the weeping angels are creatures that are as old at least as old as the universe, maybe not quite as old, were born into the universe shortly after its creation. They have no corporeal form. They are not physical beings. However, when you look at them, they take a shape. And when you look at them in that shape, they are frozen. They are completely inanimate. As long as no one and nothing is looking at them, they are able to move at blindingly fast speeds, so fast that you could blink while looking at an angel and they could get close enough to you to touch you and send you back in time and feed off of the time energy. What this is described as in the Doctor Who universe is quantum locked. They are quantum locked, which means the act of observation forces them to take a still and static form. And that static form as we see them on Earth are angels who are holding their eyes. They're not actually weeping. What they're doing is they're shielding their eyes so that they can't accidentally look at themselves in a mirror, which would get them permanently locked, or look at each other, which would get them permanently locked. Right. So two angels staring at each other would forever be in this quantum-locked state. Absolutely. It's important to note they're very ancient, they're very predatorial, and that they don't have the form that we see that form is a defense mechanism so that they can exist, coincide with other creatures, and then feed on them as they displace them through time. And we get the sense that they're also very instinctual creatures, that they're not, they're not writing philosophy and poetry. They're not building empires, or they don't seem to be discovering new ways to look at the world. It seems like all they care about is feeding, it's survival. They're kind of like vampires. They're vampiric in a way. They are very vampiric in the way that they see. All they care about is getting to more food however they can, whenever they can, and wherever they can. That's a really good point. Um, a couple of other things to point out about the sort of in-universe mythology of the angels. Uh, as we know, there are just a handful of episodes that they appear on in the show, but they do appear in uh, dozens of novelizations, of comic books, of audio stories, and other sort of uh, canonical but non-TV show material around Doctor Who. And most of that we're not going to discuss tonight, but I wanted to point out a few things that I learned from the Doctor Who wiki, which is known as TARDIS Data Core. And that's that uh, Time Lords actually viewed... Uh, in general, the Weeping Angels as mythological beings. A lot of them describe skepticism uh, as to whether or not they exist. So sort of the way we view angels in this universe, uh, the Time Lords saw them as something that some people maybe believe in, but is probably a mythological creation. Um, another thing that uh, is really interesting from these uh, extra materials is that... Uh, 
when the Earth was formed by asteroids kind of coming together, uh, the extra materials describe three angels being trapped inside the Earth as that happened, as it was being formed. And it wasn't until the Middle Ages and the Renaissance that they escaped. And that was with Michelangelo being commissioned to make statues. So he unearthed these marble slabs and released the angels by the act of carving the marble slabs. What I love about this is that Michelangelo famously has a quote about how he created his statues and his sculptures and how the act of doing so, the act of chipping away at marble, was about releasing the statue that already lived inside. He has a famous quote where he says, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. So there's this wonderful way that the Doctor Who universe is playing with uh, the reality of angels, the reality of art, and uh, the sort of mythological consciousness that surrounds them. Very neat. I'd like to kick off a next next phase of the conversation in discussing the Weeping Angels and what is one of their strongest characteristics. What are the Weeping Angels? Well, at first, they're angels. We see them introduced as statues, as angels. And how do we identify and know that they're angels? Because they're winged humans. I'd like to discuss a little bit about what is an angel, where do angels come from, how do humans know and understand and conceive of angels. Wonderful. And this is a complicated subject. And let me tell you, in preparing this this segment of the show, there's a lot of literature around angels, an almost overwhelmingly large amount. A lot of it um, is very, it's the word I'm looking for, is very for-profit, taking advantage of people's beliefs. Oh, you want to believe in angels? Let me write this book. I could probably make a lot of money, but there isn't a lot of substance to it. Yeah, that's fair. But I want to understand the origin of the angel. Now, depending upon your particular religious beliefs, you may believe that angels have existed almost as long as the universe, just as they do in the Doctor Who sense, that the universe was created and then came the weeping angels to uh, a person that is either Jewish, Christian, or Islamic, they may feel that is the way that the universe works and that angels are actual beings that interact with us. Now, I'm not here to tell anyone whether that's true or not true, but I'm not going to take that particular lens to the subject of angels, which is not to offend anyone, but rather to say, I want to understand it a little more sociologically. Yeah, that's great. And a little bit more how it's developed as a human belief structure And assume that it may not be a divine, though it may be a divine. I personally, just to be perfectly clear, don't believe in angels. Gotcha. That's Uh, know, But I wanted to start with what is an angel. Now, the idea of a winged human being who can fly around the world is fucking ancient. It predates the conception of angels as we know it today. There are winged humans in ancient Egyptian, ancient Babylonian, ancient Greek and Roman um, pagan traditions. The angel as it takes shape starts in the ancient Hebrew tradition and with the codification and the writing down of the Old Testament or the Torah, in which there are beings that exist lesser than gods but above humans in terms of the divine cosmology. There is God and God created everything and also created these other beings called angels. The word angel is a Greek word, angelos, which means messenger. Messenger, yeah. And even the ancient Hebrew word malakah, I might be pronouncing that wrong, 
also means messenger. Yeah. The idea being is that there are these beings that live not in our universe, in the universe of God, in heaven, for other, for lack of a better term, or maybe a literal term, who send messages from God into our world as we know it. Both in the Christian and Islamic texts that came after that to develop what we now call the Abrahamic faiths continued this tradition of having these angels. Surprisingly, none of these religious texts, as far as what I could find, really describe these creatures much more in depth than that, leaving a huge kind of gap of what do angels look like? What do they eat? Where do they exist in the divine hierarchy? How much more divine are they than humans? How much less divine are they than humans? The standard thinking of is that there is God who created a divine moral law, and that moral law links the entire cosmology of the universe. Angels are subject to that law because there's also the phenomenon of fallen angels. Right. Angels who no longer practice divine law and hence have fallen out of grace. And their punishment is that they come to earth or they go to hell in which to live, which is where we get the idea of Satan as a fallen angel who goes to hell, who takes lots of angels with him. Yeah, Lucifer. Absolutely. Lucifer was actually, I've learned later on, associated as Satan Originally, Lucifer was just a fallen angel who later got linked to the devil himself. Yeah. Um, all interesting things like that. So how did they become to known to have these halos and have these uh, wings? Where did that really come from? If they're not described as having any actual shape or form in the Bible, why is it when we see an angel, we know an angel? Well, in the late Roman Empire, when Christianity was no longer taboo and no longer being persecuted and was starting to be shaping into what became the Catholic Church that was linked with the Roman imperial court, they started. you started seeing iconography of angels and they adopted some pagan iconography, which is the winged creatures, which had existed before, halos, which you see around Apollo, you see around Zeus, you see around Dionysus. They started drawing them and, and describing them as halos as well. And the thinking around that artistically is that they just adopted common styles of lesser known gods and deities of the Roman and Greek world because that made the angels a little more easy to identify. It made it a little easier to see who they were. And that's how they came to be known to date. If you are a student or a professor of angelology, which is the study of angels, you admit that angels probably don't have any corporeal form at all, meaning that they don't look at all like humans. They don't act at all like humans. It's only in the way that we've described them in artistic terms that we see them as these winged humans. But really what angels do is take a message from God to a human, such as Muhammad, who got all of the prophets from an angel. Oh my God, I wrote it. I thought I wrote it down. I believe it's Gabriel. Um, it could be Michael. In any event, the Christian Bible only mentions two angels by name, Gabriel and Michael, though depending on the translation, they are referenced somewhere between 196 to 103 times. Different translations will do that differently. Because I think angels are so, um, I would say, sparingly described, because they're so loose in how they are used in these holy scriptures, has allowed the imagination to fill in a lot about what angels are and are, are not. And it has since become 
a kind of staple of being in society to have some sort of idea that perchance maybe one day you will be touched by an angel, which was the name of a TV show in America. Yeah, on like the Hallmark Channel, yeah. Or you will see a movie like It's a Wonderful Life where an angel comes from heaven to intervene. But they are very different from other divine creatures we've talked about before. In particular, we talked about Aladdin and we talked about the jinn, and we talked about the idea of spirits, sprites, fairies, dwarves, jinns, as these creatures that live on our world, and since they live on our world, they act as an intermediary between our world and the mystical world, or the metaphysical, or the spiritual. An angel is different than an angel is not part of our world. They're part of the divine world, and they give messages from the divine world to us in our current world. Wow. Okay. That was an amazing bombshell of knowledge. So I want to go back and address a couple of things that you put out there because I think they're fantastic and they uh, speak a lot to the role of the weeping angels on Doctor Who. Um, Importantly, you mentioned that angels in most holy scripture are not described as having corporeal form. In fact, from what I saw, and correct me, theologist, in all scripture, they're never described in a corporeal form. Right. And I did a little bit of research on this as well and found that there was a text written by uh, the 4th century Christian monk, I apologize if I mispronounce this, Evagrius, who described angels as pure intellect or disembodied rational minds. So very much holding up that idea of them not having corporeal form, but just being this pure level of total reason. That's how they're removed from humanity, which has access to reason, of course, but is mostly tethered to the earthly realm by desire, by self, by... uh, Sin. Yeah, by sin. And they're also not God. They are sort of lesser or littler versions of the substance that God is made of, at least according to these apocryphal texts outside of the Bible and other scripture. Um, So I thought that was fascinating. But that also speaks so much. Uh, The the effort on the part of artists and, uh, and holy people and monks who are illuminating manuscripts to give angels a form... They're making angels accessible to everyday people. They're making it more understandable than pure intellect or just divine intelligence. But they're also, uh, it's the act of observation. It's looking at the uh, angel statue, the creature that has no definite form, but takes the image of a familiar uh, like headstone monument or a guardian angel when you look at it. It makes it look innocuous, it makes it look accessible, it makes it look familiar, but in reality, this thing is something you cannot comprehend, and that's why your mind picks this image when it looks at it. Yeah, so let's talk about what, now that we had a very brief discussion on what angels are in a theological sense, what are the connections between angels as we know them and the weeping angels in the show? Right. Well, one, um, the 10th doctor mentions that the angels are almost as old as the universe, and the idea that the universe was created first and the angels then came second, similar to the angels and how they are known in Genesis. Right. First there came God, then the universe, and then the angels, presumably then before there were humans. Two, angels don't have a corporeal form whatsoever, and that they can travel at speed, and get at one point to another point in God's creation very quickly. Well, the weeping angels are incredibly fast. 
They don't have any exact corporeal form, and uh, we see them traveling at lightning fast speeds. Two, the angels as we know them are, as you said, they're the way that we imagine them, and we see the weeping angels in the way that we imagine them, as statues, as inanimate, and as dead, but that's not exactly what they are. And then lastly, the angel as messenger. Every weeping angels episode in particular the ones that focus primarily on the angels, has a character touched by an angel that needs to give a message yeah. to another character by virtue of that touch, because of that touch. For example, when we first see, um, and blink, Sally Sparrow, sorry, mm-hmm. I blanked out there. When we see her friend get Kathy, transported yeah. in the past, Kathy delivers a message from the past. When we see in The Angels Take Manhattan, we see River Song creating a message by writing a book to the doctor in the present to alert them that in 1938, the angels have taken Manhattan. Messages and how those messages are transported is a huge theme in the Weeping Angel show, relating the angels of as the messengers of God to the weeping angels as the messengers for the doctor. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. So it makes perfect sense that these, you know, interdimensional time consuming um, predators would take the form of angels in the doctor who universe. And then as the mythology in the show advances, we see the angels taking lots of different forms. They don't stay just as angels, but that's how they're first introduced and there's also the other, you know, fun parallel is that there's the fallen angels. Presumably we have these ancient non-corporeal predators. What if what if there is another class of them that don't go around feeding on time energy that are just traveling the cosmos maybe delivering time messages? So perhaps what we're seeing is the fallen angel version. The weeping angel is a lot like the falling the fallen angel. So we're seeing the sort of perverse and horrific and demonic side of these creatures, but there could be more mythology that we don't know because they're too awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you used the word awesome too, because the other thing to think about uh, with the sort of theological conception of angels and what we see on the show is that uh, in most of their appearances in holy texts, Angels have this dual uh, nature as both, and in art as well, they have this dual nature of being sublimely beautiful and simultaneously awesome and terrifying. Every time an angel delivers a message to someone in the Bible or in any other holy text, it is an experience that is both uh, one of being showered with beautiful light and also being so scared you can't even move. And that's something that I think the show really grapples onto with its depiction of the angels because we not only have this sort of serene beauty of the angels as they are covering their heads and heads bent and their beautiful uh, bird wings, but we also have their sort of demonic bird-like faces uh, that are just waiting to devour you. There is this dual nature between incredible serene beauty and this thing is so horrible, it almost cannot be beheld. Well, I mean, you know, imagine this. You're hanging out, you're a young woman, and 
You know, you think things are good. You're in Judea. You know, it's like there's worse places to be. And suddenly an angel comes and says that you're going to bear the son of God. And you're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot. No, it's a really big message. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a lot. You know, you're hanging out and you're like, you know, it's cool. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm an Arab. I've got my sheep to flock and everything. And suddenly an angel comes. It's like, here's the word of God. And you're like, oh my God, oh my God, I got to go out there and become a prophet. That's, I think, exactly what that would feel like. That's exactly how religion works. You know, there's a wonderful quote by uh, the poet Rainer Maria Rilke, where he says, quote, every angel is terrifying, end quote. And I think that really captures uh, not just the weeping angel idea, but also just what angels have represented in theology and in mythology. They are something that brings this message that is often earth-shaking and terrifying. Yeah, and angelology is fascinating. There's so much out there. There are a lot of people trying to uh, write about, talk about, and share this idea of what it means to be an angel. And uh, just want to throw this last out here in our discussion on the history and theology of angels. Um, when we think of angels, we really do mean them in the, you know, the Judean, Christian, Islamic, Abrahamic faith tradition. But that's only one particular lens as well. There are others, uh, ways that we can understand sort of these elevated spiritual beings who can transmit messages. For example, there's Buddhavistas and Buddhavi- oh, Buddhism. Bodhisattvas. Yeah. Bodhisattvas, pardon me, I said it completely Yeah, they wrong. are sort of similar to angels in that way. They are a sort of in-between uh, figure. They are uh, specifically people who have reached enlightenment, but instead of going on to become a Buddha or to break the cycle of samsara for themselves, they stay behind on this plane to assist others toward enlightenment. That's what a bodhisattva really does. Right, and so there's there's other ways that you could look at what it means to be an angel. So this is just one way one way to discuss them. Yeah, I, but I think it's really instructive for understanding the weeping angels. Stephen Moffat, the showrunner who wrote the episode Blink that first introduced the Weeping Angels, tells an interesting story when asked what his inspiration for the Weeping Angels was. And it really is that he was walking past an old Victorian graveyard one day in London, and he saw a sign on the fence outside that said, like, caution, unsafe structure. And he looked into the graveyard, and there was this sort of uh, dour... uh, unpleasant statue of an angel uh, in the graveyard that was the first thing that he saw. And then he came back to it sometime later, and the sign saying unsafe structure was still there, but the angel was gone. And this idea of where did the angel go uh, sparked this whole uh, concept of the weeping angel for him. And also, I think, gave Blink and the Angels Take Manhattan and many of the appearances of the weeping angels this sort of gothic Victorian feel that they have. And another aspect of what the weeping angels are that's important to visit is that they are statues. So they're not just angels, but they are statues of angels. They are artistic representations of angels. And if we look at the style of what they are, uh, of how the like prototypical weeping angel looks, I think we would probably place them in either Edwardian or Victorian times, 18th or 19th century, most likely, um, somewhere near neoclassicism. We would do this because they have this sort of Hellenistic Greco-Roman dress and hairstyle, but they also have this sort of uh, Victorian monumental uh, look to them. They look like they belong on a headstone. 
and there's an interesting um, artistic touch point for uh, the, the image of the weeping angel, and that is a statue, uh, a 19th century statue by William Wetmore Story. It's a sculpture known as the Angel of Grief, or alternatively, the Weeping Angel. That is a headstone monument he created for his wife who died. It was probably the last statue he ever made because he wanted to give up sculpture when his wife died. But his children said, no, you have to make something for her. It would feel like this great uh, you know, gift to her memory. So this artist went and created this weeping angel statue for her grave that has been recreated on many, many important headstones ever since. So this idea of the weeping angel is once again tied to grief, tied to death, tied to uh, feelings of love across time, tied to feelings of loss of a loved one. And I think it's interesting how both artistic representations of angels and the idea of angel can come together and create this um, sort of instant recognizable feeling when we see a statue. And that is captured in that first moment of blink when Sally Sparrow looks out the window and sees the angel holding her face in her hands. Which is why that episode is so fucking scary. Because it takes what should be a symbol of just grief and sadness. And comfort. And something that we recognize and understand. And it inverts it and turns it into this mindless, soulless predator. It's why that, that, that episode gets so scary deep into your bones. And I think it's the secret sauce to why the Weeping Angels... Such a new, such a rarely used villain of Doctor Who. Maybe you get a Weeping Weeping Angels episode in a Doctor Who season. Most of the time you don't. But when it's used, it is such a fan favorite. And they have such a cult following because it does capture this sort of cross lens from thousands of years of angelology mixed with pagan imagery, mixed with neoclassic architecture and art forms, mixed with uh, time predators, and you add it all in together, and suddenly you have this villain that's able to capture everything that the Doctor stands against. Everything the Doctor is not. The Doctor who affirms life, the Doctor who who affirms free will and individuals being able to choose The doctor who looks at time travel as this grand adventure through space and time in order to experience life. The doctor who looks at every single person that he's ever met, even one that's not as clever and dense as him, but still fights for their rights and affirms that they have the ability to exist. And here come these villains that'll just tap you when you blink and send you somewhere else and consume the life that you would have had. Yeah. Well, and there's something that uh, I think the conversation that we've had so far tonight uh, speaks to a lot of that. It speaks to a lot of why this villain is so successful. But one other thing that I'm interested in is why are they so successful as a Doctor Who villain? Why aren't they just part of, you know, just a, a, a contemporary gothic novel? Why aren't they a Batman villain, for instance? And that brings us to talk about the quantum aspects of the Weeping Angels, to talk about the aspects of them that are sci-fi rather than just fantasy or supernatural horror. Because these episodes usually get closest to horror as far as as Doctor Who episodes go. 
they uh, lean away from the really classic sci-fi feeling of most of the like typical episodes and into a different kind of genre, but they still access something that is fundamentally science fiction. And that's what I want to kind of wrap up our conversation with tonight. Absolutely. I mean, one thing you can point out is that they're not divine magical beings. They are right. physical beings, part of the universe who evolved with the universe. Yeah, absolutely. And while they may take the shape of something that looks to us divine, they also have very clear laws and mechanics by which they have to uh, obey. And the most important of those is that they are quantum locked. So when you turn around and look at them, they have to freeze. They cannot move when they are being observed. And this is very clearly an allusion to uh, an important quantum thought experiment that we've talked about before on the podcast known as Schrodinger's cat. But it is an apt metaphor and something that's worth revisiting here. The idea uh, of this experiment is if you have a quantum cat in a box and the cat is in there with some sort of noxious gas or toxic material, as long as you don't open the box, the cat is simultaneously alive and dead. Once you open the box and look to see if the cat is alive or dead, it will be one or the other. But as long as you don't observe it, it will be both. And this is a sort of zoom out way of understanding how quantum subatomic particles work, which is that if you observe a system of subatomic particles, you, by very nature, change the system. Observing the system changes the system. Now, when talking about the weeping angels, you can't just talk about Schrodinger's cat. You also have to talk about the paradoxes of Zeno. So we're going to head back to the ancient Greeks here for a moment uh, and talk about Zeno of Elia, who was a 5th century BCE uh, philosopher, most likely, and his paradoxes mostly survive in the works of Aristotle. Uh, and he laid out these paradoxes of motion that are pretty much the first examples of what's known as reductio ad absurdum. So they're proofs uh, that are, are these, these layouts of logic that are proof by contradiction. Mostly they're there to make you go insane. But one of his paradoxes uh, about motion says that in order for any, uh, any object in locomotion to reach its end point from its starting point, it must first arrive at the halfway point. And in order to arrive at the halfway point, it must arrive at a quarter of the way. And in order to arrive at a quarter of the way, it must arrive at an eighth of the way. And so on and so on and so on, ad infinitum. Now this would require the object in locomotion to perform an infinite number of tasks, which, according to Zeno, is impossible. Therefore, motion is impossible. It's a paradox, and as we know, with the objects that we observe in everyday life, motion is possible. I am gesticulating wildly while I talk on this podcast, and it is happening. Derek can observe that I am moving. However, Zeno probably wasn't necessarily thinking about quantum subatomic particles in the 5th century BCE, but when we shrink our understanding down to quantum particles, we find that Zeno's paradoxes tend to kind of hold up. Can I give just a fun fact yeah, here? Yeah, please. The word atom, atom comes, like A-T-O-M, yeah. comes from the atomists, a group of ancient Greek philosophers 
who theorized that the entire universe was made up of tiny little particles that you couldn't see. And when atoms were discovered, they called them atoms in respect of the atomists. Where would they get a crazy idea like that? Yo, That's the, wonderful. The ancient Greeks were really fucking smart. Yeah, that is really wonderful. Um, but I want to point out uh, a Cornell University study that was done, I think in 2015, just a couple of years ago, uh, where these scientists were trying to observe a quantum system. So a bunch of subatomic particles of a particular element. And what they did was instead of doing a Schrodinger's cat style experiment where occasionally they would observe it and see if it picked a position, alive or dead, uh, they took a series of rapid uh, measurements of the atoms, which effectively translated to constantly observing the atomic system. So never blinking. You mean looking the, at it. the subatomic system? Yes, okay. yeah. So they, they took so many rapid measurements that it was the equivalent of looking at something without blinking constantly. And what this did was freeze these subatomic particles in time. It quantum locked them, something that they ended up calling the quantum Zeno effect or the weeping angel effect. So at its very core base level... The weeping angels of Doctor Who are playing with not only this observable possibility in quantum theory and mechanics for this sort of sci-fi angle, but something that thinkers have been puzzling out for as long as we have been on this planet. Something that we have been working through, these paradoxes that we've been trying to understand as we try to think about motion and uh, and velocity and observation and all of the crazy things that we deal with on an everyday, everyday level. How do they really work? We've been thinking about these since the time of Zeno. And it sounds like the idea of a quantum-locked being who one observed can no longer be in motion anymore is at least, according to this one study, at least theoretically possible. Right, yeah, and that's just them looking at subatomic particles. It doesn't really translate to the world of everyday objects and beings, but when we think about that and then we apply that to a story, well, how does that serve us? And I think that serves us in a number of ways. It gives us this really cool villain who is terrifying in a way that some villains aren't, that you have to constantly look at the thing that scares you, and if you look away from the thing that scares you, that's when it gets you. That's an amazing conceit for a monster because what is your first instinct when you are faced with a monster? It is close to look away. Yep, close your eyes. So we are instructed to look directly at the thing and we are told that we have to trust our observations, we have to trust our perceptions over all things, uh, which I think is a fascinating way to have characters stand up to these monsters. And we get to deal with a creature that is working in the way that no other creature is working. Very, very, very cool. Um, what I just Can I mention something else about at least the episode Blink that kind of struck me as interesting yeah. um, here in the pod? One of the things about that episode that I thought was so refreshing and so interesting was how the doctor isn't even in it, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. And how they do an entire Doctor Who episode 
they introduce a Doctor Who villain. The Doctor has to confront this villain. And the only way the Doctor can communicate with the person that they need to confront the villain with is through the Easter eggs and the DVDs. Yeah. And that's it. And through that, it's an entire other character that we meet for the first time in this story, get introduced to, get to learn a little bit about, then go on the journey. And it's this character who ultimately has to do the work of defeating the uh, Weeping Angels by getting the TARDIS back to the Doctor, which would then freeze the Weeping Angels into staring at each other. Yeah. And I think that's just an interesting decision when you take a show called Doctor Who and make the Doctor the side character of it, put another character at the center of this story, and then introduce at that at the same time a new villain. And I think there's a really brave decision in how that what that entire episode was constructed that I think is one of which is one of the reasons it's one of the most unique. It's one of the best. It's one of the most time tested. It's always at the top of fan favorite Doctor Who episodes. And the Doctor's like not in it at all. Yeah. No, this is definitely one of my top five favorite Doctor Who episodes. And we should also point out that Sally Sparrow is played by a very early career, Carrie Mulligan, who has gone on to have a wonderful career and is a fantastic actor. But I think it was the first thing I ever saw her in. And she's a really compelling presence. And again, it does take on this sort of genre feel of being a gothic horror story. And that's something that Doctor Who hadn't really tried before on that scale and has definitely gone on to try and replicate since, maybe not as effectively as it did with Blink. And the reason that Blink re uh, continues to land on the top of fan favorite lists is A, because the Weeping Angels are a fantastic monster, and B, because they took that kind of brave leap, because they were able to break the structure and show that the uh, that the television program existed on its own merits outside of just the charismatic lead. And that's, that's what the show has going for it in general. It can change charismatic leads every couple of years and continue to maintain this incredible fan base because it has great monsters, because it has uh, great ideas, because it challenges you to think about things in a different way. You know, there's a standard formula to a really good Doctor Who episode there is a doctor who is just doing something with the companion. They're right. confronted with a monster. That monster, once the doctor learns about it, is not as monstrous as the doctor thought. And he learns a little something about the monster, ultimately defeats that monster, and gets to go about his journey with the companion or her journey with the companion. And they're all happy again. That's yeah. the standard formula. And it's great, right? It's a good monster of the week show. The And then occasionally you get these like quintessential villains that link to a broader narrative that culminate in a finale where the doctor finally has to de defeat the monster of the season. Yeah. Um, those monsters are typically Cybermen or Daleks or, you know, something like that. The Weeping Angels kind of poke the hole because once we learn about them, they're even more monstrous than when they were just potentially yeah. a ghost. Right, potentially a possessed statue. And that learning about them doesn't grant any special knowledge or a special way for the monster to beat them or to overcome them, which is why I think they stopped. They weren't just a monster of that one episode of that one week and why they keep coming back. Because there's a little specialness to them. Because learning about them makes them scarier. 
right? Instead of like in the Van Gogh episode, I don't even yeah. know the name of the, that monster, but once they learn about it, like, oh, it's not a monster. It's just really confused and yeah, lost. Yeah. So many of the times that's how the doctor ends up defeating the challenge. And, um, but with this one, once you learn what these are, once, once Sally, Sally Sparrow knows what these are and what's happening to them, it's even more terrifying. She's in more peril and the doctor's nowhere near her to just kind of whip out the sonic screwdriver, wave it up and down, hit the TARDIS with a sledgehammer and suddenly rewrite time. It didn't work that way in this episode. And I think that's why we keep seeing them come back and back and back. And they also take the doctor's greatest asset, time travel, and they turn it against him. Yeah. You know, time travel is what the doctor's good at. Well, time travel is something that they're also good at. And it's something they feed on. And it makes them stronger. Yep. Yeah. And they turn mundane things like blinking and turning around and taking your eyes off something into a deadly and grave mistake. All right. Any final thoughts here? No, this has been a really fun episode. I have really enjoyed this, uh, you know, new structure for talking about a show that we really love. If this is an episode that you enjoyed and you're a Doctor Who fan uh, and you want us to do more like this, like you want us to do maybe a Daleks episode or a Cybermen episode, or you want us to look at some other iconic aspect of Doctor Who, let us know. Again, best place to do that is on Twitter at The Midnight Myth or at any of the other social media or website things that I'll link in the show notes later. Um, this has been awesome, and thanks. Yeah, guys, and until next time, be kind. Don't blink. Don't blink.